0: Most people have heard of phytoestrogens, but did you know there are beneficial phytoandrogens that mimic and support testosterone and more? The top source of these is pine pollen. If you're looking for 100% natural hormonal support for men and women, you've got to try this. Right now, Lost Empire Herbs' best-selling pine pollen is available for one penny plus shipping and handling. Go to GeniusPollen.com to find out more and grab yourself a bag today. No hidden charges, no trial offer, No shenanigans, just a low-cost way to try Lost Empire Herb's top product for next to nothing.
1: Forget frequently asked questions.
0: Common sense, common knowledge, or Google.
1: How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1%
2: First, I have Dr. Michelle Kukla. She's a licensed clinical psychologist and a neuropsychologist with over 15 years experience in helping individuals cope with mental health concerns. She's the owner and founder of Healthy Living Counseling Center. It's a health consortium in the Chicagoland area that provides premier premier mental health care. Website resource for her is goodtherapy.org. And I'm also speaking with uh, Dr. Eugene Lipov. Uh, He's a Chicago-based board-certified anesthesiologist and a pain specialist uh, he's the first to use what's called a stellate ganglion block SGB to treat uh, PTSD post traumatic stress disorder in veterans and victims of uh, military sexual trauma sexual abuse etc so uh, thank you both for coming i appreciate it thank you
3: thank you we're happy to be here
2: excellent so it looks like the topic will be um, countering PTSD i'm sure it's experienced by many people in their different professions and experiences so I guess if both of you would weigh in a little bit, a brief sketch of your backgrounds, both of you, and how did you end up being concerned with PTSD?
4: You want to go ahead first, Michelle?
3: Sure, that's fine. Yeah, in terms of my career, I started off in a rotation during my internship focused on health psychology and also neuropsychology. And after those studies, and coming back to that was at Mayo Health Systems, and after coming back to Illinois and starting up my own private practice. I noticed in terms of working with people and dealing with health concerns and progressive neurological diseases that when I would do my medical history with individuals, they would be hitting on so much in terms of medical health issues, cardiovascular issues, autoimmune issues and concerns. And then when I would do my diagnostic interview, I'd get to the question about, history of trauma and asking about what's happened between, especially between birth and age 18, that's when I'd be getting people coming up and letting me know that, oh, history of sexual molestation, sexual trauma, physical abuse, coming from a household with a lot of dysfunction, and I was very much familiar with Dr. Folletti and his Adverse Childhood Experiences studies and research, and I realized For me to best help people adjust to their health issues, I really needed to become an expert in trauma, and that really launched um, my focus on really exploring methods and developing the expertise to help people heal the trauma, which then in turn helps them be healthier and manage any kind of medical issues or diseases that are going on for them, if not helping prevent and stave that off, since the research is pretty clear for those that have had Trauma experiences, especially birth age 18, that it really dramatically increases the risk decades later Uh, that they're going to have mental health concerns or physical issues.
4: Okay, and uh, Dr. Lipov,
3: what's your background?
4: Yeah, so basically, I, I was interested in surgery. So, as a background before, so I'm a medical doctor. So, I was working in surgery. So, I finished medical school, started my surgical internship, and then my mother killed herself three months into my internship. So, my okay. father had severe PTSD from World War II. So, out of 10,000 people in his squadron, 100 made it home. So, I believe he created a very stressful environment, which I experienced. And then, you know, part of that led directly to my mother's death, I think. So, that led me to a lot of interest in. PTSD, but I really didn't do much about that until I started treating people with half flashes, uh, which is something my brother and I came up with. During investigation, and trying to understand how the block, Stella Ginglian block, helped half flashes. I came across a paper from Finland that suggested that stellate would help PTSD, and that's how I got into that.
2: Oh, okay. So, you know, for people that don't know um, clinically, have- how is PTSD defined? Like, what do you observe in someone that has it?
3: Sure. So there's a cluster of four groups of symptoms we usually typically see. Um, First being avoidance. They've had a traumatic situation. They don't want to have any reminders. They might not want to watch a TV show that involves car accidents or cancer. They might avoid the location of the car accident. Um, Another area of symptoms that we'll also see is arousal issues and reactivity where they have difficulty falling asleep. Uh, They might have an exaggerated startle response, very hypervigilant to their surroundings. They also tend to have negative alterations in their thoughts and their mood, but they might feel guilty or shame. They might have a negative outlook on themselves in the future. And then they also can experience intrusion symptoms. And what we mean by that is they might be plagued by memories of the particular event or incident that occurred, nightmares, flashbacks, and memories that are just intruding on their day-to-day living.
4: Okay, and Dr. Eugene, what do you experience? Anything different from the patients? Keep in mind, Michelle is a psychologist, which has a beautiful way of explaining it. So mine is I'm more directed to the treatment I can offer. So basically, I look at the word as fight and flight system is being overactive. So when the fight and flight system is overactive, people cannot sleep; they have nightmares. So similar things that she's saying, but you know, more is a little more physiologic. And then the other part is people overreact to stimuli. So, you know, you drop something on the floor, people with PTSD are very jumpy. So they're very common things. And also they have very short fuse. All the fight and flight systems. I can tell you more physiology behind it, but that's kind of what I'm seeing. And that's what I'm trying to treat. Yeah.
2: Know. No, I understand. I'm from New York, so I think I have, by definition, a little bit of PTSD just, just coming from there. <laughs> yeah,
4: just walking the streets there could be scary.
2: <laughs> well, I mean, you know, my experience has been that everyone's amped there, ready to like jump on the slightest thing. And now that I live in, in Texas, I, you know, I'm a lot calmer and you know, I don't feel that way too. It took me like a year to, to calm down. So I've had a little bit of experience with it. And, uh, my wife grew up in an abusive home. So she definitely has hypervigilance and she exhibits some of these, these issues sometimes. She, um, got into a car accident a few years ago and that seemed to really ramp up all these things and you know, we work, we've been working on different therapies to help her and all that so i have a little bit of experience with with someone that's had you know has ptsd so just wanted to get your um, your perception on what you guys see in general so um so what are some of the uh classical and or effective treatments for ptsd that both of you observe
4: well i mean my mine is kind of a relative newcomer to psychiatry right i'm not a psychiatrist so michelle can talk about her therapist, and in fact, her therapy and my therapy work beautifully well together. Because if you think about it, if somebody is overactive, since you were talking about your wife, so basically, the way I look at the word is fight and flight system is overactive. So it was overactive from her childhood issues. But then when she got into car accident, overactivity got ramped up, and it's going to be very hard for her to sleep and have other symptoms. So it's hard to participate in psychiatric therapy. So, the stuff I do when I do an injection in the neck, what we're doing is we're resetting the fight and flight system to before the trauma state so people can be calm and actually they can now communicate with somebody like Shell and she can then make great progress. So, the way, the easiest way to look at it from my perspective is that if you look at a computer, you have hardware and software. So, the hardware needs to be functional for software to work. So, you cannot really do a great patch software patch, on a computer with a broken chip. So what I can do, hopefully, is fix the chip, and then Michelle can do a patch, and people can function very well. And they both work in unison.
0: Most supplements are taken on faith and could take weeks or months to have an effect. Even supplements backed by scientific studies may or may not deliver those same benefits to you. But what if you could feel the results of what you took within just a few days? Lost Empire Herbs offers the highest quality wild-harvested Non-irradiated pine pollen, and that can dramatically impact your hormones fast. Right now, you can grab it for one cent plus shipping and handling at geniuspollen.com
2: Yeah, a question before we move to Michelle's part. So, what is this stellate uh, ganglion that's blocked? What, what is it? How does it work?
4: Oh, okay. Sure. So, well, in order to understand, you have done some with PTSD, is what it's not. So, first of all, it's a biological phenomena. It's not some obscure weakness of soul or something crazy. So in fact, you can actually scan somebody using advanced scanners like functional MRI, and you can actually see a difference in amygdala overactivation. Amygdala is a part of the brain that controls PTSD. So when somebody has an accident, let's say, and it's a scary accident, it overactivates fight and flight system because the body designed a system to run away or fight or flight, right? But if it overactivates too much, like you know, there is horrible things can happen everywhere, military and non-military, it produces fight and flight sympathetic system activation and growth That's called well sprouting. You think of a certain number of nerve fibers in the brain, just for simplicity's sake, let's say there are four, after accident, now there are eight. And each of those fibers produces a drug, uh, not drug, a transmitter, hormone called norepinephrine. It's like a brother of adrenaline. So if I take fluid around the brain, In a soldier with PTSD, their norepinephrine level would be twice as high as normal. So as long as that persists, people have the symptoms of hypervigilance, difficulty sleeping. When we do local anesthetic injection in the neck, it deactivates this new nerve growth. In fact, it leads to something called pruning. That's what the neuroscientists call it, or loss of the extra nerves. And it calms the system down to the before trauma level. And people can now sleep better and interact better. And so what's in the shot is local anesthetic, the same drug that's used for women who are pregnant. So we numb up the ganglia and what it does is it resets the nerve fibers to the pre-trauma state.
2: Okay. So if I guess they're they're overactive and they're producing various hormones and chemicals either in the wrong proportions or just too yep. much, so you're able to reset them back to their normal unagitated state or up, un upregulated state.
4: Yeah. I mean, so basically it down-regulates, exactly right. It goes from upregulated state to downregulated state, but like especially the special forces, when they receive the block and they're exposed to the enemy fire or something like that, they can certainly get very active if they need to be. But it's controlled as opposed to frenetic. Hmm.
2: Okay. And then that paves the way for you, Dr. Kukla, to work with them in a psychotherapy forum. Is that right?
3: Correct. It's it's a it's a beautiful union because what happens is with the like ganglion block procedure, it puts individuals in what oftentimes we refer to as therapists into the therapeutic window of tolerance, but people become much more calm, they come back into their body, they're more grounded, and therefore it accelerates our capacity to go in and do the processing work. And know that people can keep one foot in the present and allow themselves to dip into the past and not get overwhelmed. We don't have to spend months and months resourcing individuals and teaching coping skills. We're able to really do this in a much more accelerated fashion. Um, and so it's just it's the, the progress I've been able to make, especially with individuals that we often um, delineate as complex PTSD, but oftentimes what we refer to when we say complex PTSD. That they've had repeated exposures to multiple traumas. You know, mm. it might have been systematic sexual child abuse. You know, or being physically abused as a child, and then having domestic violence um, from a partner, uh, traumatic car accident, traumatic surgery, and so these these add. And so for individuals in particular with complex PTSD, they don't respond as well to the traditional interventions that we use for trauma work. EMDR, cognitive processing therapy are very good for single incident events, but oftentimes we can get more people falling into that area where they're more treatment resistant. They just have not seen the good success rates from some of these interventions.
2: Mm. Yeah, I've um, I've noticed with myself, like if I'm really agitated, It's literally hard to, I mean, I can hear what other people are saying, but somehow it just doesn't process. It's weird. I would guess that people in this, you know, when they're in a very agitated or heightened state, like they literally don't hear or can't hear what you're saying or can't process it. So I'm guessing that's why those therapies might not be effective.
3: Correct. Yeah, the traditional talk therapies, especially. We know through research that when we get sympathetically aroused like that, our prefrontal lobe goes offline. So that's our thinking brain. (laughs) So, so now we don't have capacity to that part so yeah absolutely it's critical for us to really make movement and progress in therapy is to make sure that the person's well regulated and their prefrontal lobe is intact and they're about connection and not in this protective defensive state anymore with us and we do the processing work
2: Oh well, I should have asked this before but is PTSD a downward spiral like when someone has it if it goes untreated does it tend to get worse or it's bad enough on its own sake that It just really interferes with normal living.
4: Well, let let me take a stab at that, and then uh, maybe Michelle can help with that. But the thing that people, I think, don't realize that PTSD is associated with many other biological conditions, that's exactly what Dr. Gupta was talking about, is the chance of somebody having a heart attack is two, three times higher if somebody has PTSD, and then many other conditions, maybe cancer and things like that. So. I think there is biological reason to try to fix it as quickly as you can. And as far as going downhill, if somebody cannot sleep or function and their brain is offline, they will have problems with the law. There is a much higher incidence of addiction and things along those lines, and they cannot function at work. So it is a downward slide.
0: Before we get started, I have a quick favor. I've been self-funding the Finding Genius podcast for five years now. I've done over 3,000 episodes. And as you can see on YouTube, we're up over a million views on the channel, which is fantastic. The next thing I really want to push on is to get up to 10,000 subscribers. Because once we do, we'll be able to put a donate button, and we'll be able to solicit donations uh, to help keep the podcast running, and to also get the Finding Genius Foundation moving along. We have a big project studying anxiety, depression, and PTSD, and working on a product to help people overcome these problems uh, because I've seen them explode recently, after the uh, you know the last two years of the whole virus situation. So if you would please subscribe to the podcast, that would help us tremendously. Give us a thumbs up, and check in the description for "Buy Me a Coffee." It's about five bucks. If you could buy me a coffee, I'd really appreciate it. It would help keep the channel going, and I love coffee. Thank you.
2: Yeah, I can see why people will be more prone to addiction too because I've yeah. Been- you know, smoke weed or do whatever it is but I guess they're trying to get themselves in a more relaxed state maybe they just don't know how and they, they're just so agitated they can't get off the time and relax so that's why they turn to those you know, or Dr. Kupo, like psychologically
3: sure so one of the other things too when we see people turning to substances or eating issues will start to occur as well overeating, not eating enough but they'll use those methods as well to again regulate the nervous system they're making attempts to, you know, calm themselves down. So they'll misuse substances. They'll um, even sometimes hypersexuality will occur too. They're just ways to regulate the nervous system.
2: Yeah. So I guess people are trying to engage in behaviors to help themselves calm down. But unfortunately, without guidance, it sounds like the behaviors are not good for them. You know, addiction, like you said, hypersexuality, eating disorders, etc. Is that correct?
3: Correct. Yeah, exactly. That's
2: they're 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 ad- Go ahead.
3: Go ahead. No, okay. No, they're just they're picking unhealthy methods to try and regulate. The instinct is there. It doesn't feel comfortable to be in these heightened states of sympathetic arousal. So it's it's natural to investigate what might calm myself down, but in the long run, they are not healthy methods.
2: But um in addition to bad habits and you know, problems with your health, potential heart attack, stroke, et cetera, which are bad enough, but is PTSD a degenerative Condition if it's not treated, or does it just kind of stay at a certain level? But it, all these bad sequelae happen regardless.
4: So let me see if I understand what you mean. The degenerative condition you mean? Does it does it progress? Does it get worse? Is that what you're asking?
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, like you said, it leads to all kinds of bad outcomes. But in addition, does PTSD if it's untreated, does it progress and make everything
4: even worse? Yeah. So, so to me at least, PTSD itself can actually shrink the brain. So it can lead to direct nerve damage, which is really a huge problem. And all those unhealthy behaviors can lead people going down, and certainly PTSD can recede by itself, I think, but I think Michelle would know much more than I do about it. But overall, I would say, you know, it's not, not everybody is going to go downhill with PTSD, but a significant percentage will. Dr. Gukla, what do you think?
3: Sure. You know, there are many people that, you know, especially after having a trauma, the body is quite resilient. And within, in order to meet PTSD criteria, you need to have symptoms taking place over 30 days. So for over a month that you've had these various symptoms from different criteria in terms of avoidance, arousal, reactivity, those elements. And so, again, over 30 days that people interact with a traumatic event, That naturally does disappear for a good portion of people. It's the small percentage that then goes on past that month that then also have issues and concerns. And some, there is some research that again about three months out that some people can have their own spontaneous remissions without actual therapeutic intervention. But, but many do need that extra assistance of a professional to help delay and also obviously prevent some of these other ongoing medical and health issues and also other mental health issues. Oftentimes PTSD is also diagnosed with depression, other anxiety disorders
2: as well. Um, Dr. Kukla is a question for you. So when you're doing therapy with someone that's had a very old trauma, let's say from their childhood, and it's been like 20, 30 years versus a new trauma, you know, again, let's say they got into a car accident or they were attacked physically somewhere last week or something. What's the difference in terms of how it manifests in PTSD? Again, old versus new injuries. Uh,
3: the body doesn't differentiate time that way. It's, it's stuck in the past, regardless of whether it was 20 years ago, 30 years ago, or six months ago. Um, and so when they get triggered, that's the issue is that the, the brain hasn't fully put a period on their traumatic event, put it in the past. And so so from the brain's perspective, it literally thinks the event just happened, it's about to happen, or it's happening right now. So, so our mm. same protocols apply, whether it's, yeah, six months ago to 20, 30 years ago.
4: So one, one of the things I'd like to kind of bring up is the difference between there are three brains. People talk about fish brain, reptilian brain, and the new brain. The reptilian brain is the limbic system. Limbic system, fight and flight, basic urges, sexual function, things like that. So all the advanced thinking that people work on, that's sabotaged by the limbic system. That's exactly what Dr. Cook was talking about, that the time doesn't really matter. People just know they're miserable. It makes no difference when that event happened.
2: Well, what happens uh, physiologically and psychologically as, let's say you ask someone to to talk about this past event, again, is there any difference between the event happening? You know, a month ago versus thirty years ago, when they recount the experience, and again, psychologically and physiologically, what happens to someone as they recount these experiences?
4: So, I, from my perspective, not much difference. So, when it's a it's a severe event, right, and then people already have overactivity stimuli. So, when people talk about childhood abuse, they have a horrible reaction, or they have a you know sexual assault, let's say a month prior the reaction will be the same. It just depends which part of the memory. So there is two types of memories, intrinsic, extrinsic. Extrinsic is emotional memory, which sits in a whole different part of the brain than intrinsic memory. And so when something triggers the patient, the response will be the same. But if they see somebody that looks like an abuser, I had a patient that they, she saw a patient that looked just like somebody who attacked her a few months prior, she would curl into a ball and be non-responsive. After I did the block, she saw him on the street telling him to go to hell, and she was fine.
2: But what about the uh, the rumination component? Like, you know, again, if something happened to me 30 years ago, I would guess that I don't ruminate on it as much as if something happened to me recently. So is there any other difference? Well,
4: I, I I would disagree with it. I've seen people have rumination component is gets over time, gets worse and worse and worse. Because they huh. feel like, why did it happen to me? Then they self-blame and they feel anxious. I'd be curious to Dr. Kukla's perspective, but I've seen a lot of that, and the stuff I do a lot of right. times stops rumination.
3: Right. Yeah, I echo that. Um, you know, the rumination just creates bigger, bigger trenches in the brain and in the neural circuitry, and then that stuff lives. We've got the saying, neurons that fire together, wire together, and then I always like to add and survive together. And so, yeah, as you continue to have these ruminations, those neural network systems continue to fire and wire together and survive, so it just gets even more more rooted yeah, this is I really
2: interesting. That. I didn't, I didn't know this. That uh, old, old insults versus newer ones are, you know, pretty similar. Again, in, in terms of how the person experiences and clinically, but again, so regardless of when PTSD happened or how it happened, do people respond in a predictable way when they, you know, start thinking back on what happened? Like physiologically and psychologically, what happens if you say to someone, you know, hey, hey, so and so, tell me about. What happened when this happened to you? Like, what, what happens to them literally both ways?
4: Well, to me at least, women start to cry and then get this stuff, and then they shut down. They both shut down because they cannot handle the memory, and it's very hard to process. That that is that's what I've seen. But equally, I see it from different than psychologists.
3: Sure, yeah. From our perspective, if I go back to again that therapeutic window of tolerance, where people are feeling <sighs> a little bit more regulated, and if we use Dr. Porges' terminology of polyvagal theory, but they're in a state of ventral, which means, again, they're feeling grounded. Their vagus nerve actually has a bit of a break on, and they feel very much connected. They're more present-oriented. Mm-hmm. And so when when people are dealing with trauma, they get pushed out of that therapeutic window of tolerance, and they might go upregulated where they're you know anxious, mind's racing. They might feel um, restless legs, you know, legs are pissing, they'll go up-regulated there, or some individuals will actually get pushed down and out of their therapeutic window of tolerance, and then we refer to that as hyporegulated. but they'll start to kind of want to collapse, they'll want to fold, they get very quiet distance, some will actually dissociate. Um, when they have not properly dealt with the traumas. And so, so yeah, from our perspective, we'll we'll repeatedly see people as being hyper-aroused or moving into that hypo aroused area and out of the therapeutic window of tolerance. And the goal for us in therapy is, is to have people be able to look at their traumatic events and feel regulated while doing it, um, feel that they're very present and know that that is the past and it's over, and feeling safe, having their nervous system feel safe, even though they're talking about a very traumatic event that took place in their life.
2: Hmm. So what was clinical work like for both of you before you started working together? I'm sure it was not as easy and it didn't work as well, but what was that like and what is it like now?
4: Well, from my perspective, it's very hard to find a really good, solid psychologist that is trauma-informed because there is psychologists come in the same kind of variety as doctors uh, like MDs do. Superb, okay, and not so good. So, you know, to me, Dr. Kukla is superb because she doesn't trigger patients. So she understands how to talk to the people carefully and not triggering them. And she can process the issues they're working with effectively because the stuff, you know, I know how to do the procedure quite well, hopefully after thirty five years. But, you know, to really have truly good results, you need a really trauma-informed psychologist, and that's where Dr. Kukla shines. And you, Dr.
2: Kukla, what was uh, clinical work like before Dr. Lipov?
3: Sure. It It was much slower going, and oftentimes there were some individuals that we didn't address their actual traumatic events and incidences. We were just focusing on resourcing the individual, helping them once they get triggered, whether they get over-aroused or under-aroused, that they have the skills and the techniques and methods to bring them back to a place of safety and feeling grounded. And and with his brilliance of bringing this biological event to be able to help mental health, it just really accelerates our capacity to now really process a lot of these memories where some people just never would have moved that far. Just, again, we would have just stuck with resourcing individuals, and we're also able to do it in a very, very gentle and compassionate way. I'm, um, and that's what I've been dedicated for years, is I'm not a fan of people sitting and talking about their worst nightmare repeatedly over and over again, hoping for desensitization. And most of the techniques and methods I use, very, very little talk goes on, and I'm certainly not doing anything to have them relive um, their traumatic event. And so with the stellate ganglion block, that really gives us added extra security that I can, I can do this in such a gentle, compassionate, effective, and accelerated way. And it's been, it's been amazing. You know, I've been able mm. to work with some individuals that I've been working with on and off for a long period of time, and they get the stellate ganglion block, and they're coming in and we're we're moving along. We're we're targeting these memories. It's just it's amazing. Um, it's just been mm. really incredible. It's been a joy um, to to work with him on this.
2: So um, are you both promoting this combined approach? Like, is this a very rare approach? If so, if someone has PTSD and they don't know about both of you, will they be very unlikely
4: to find this combination therapy? I don't think it's necessarily true. So I I, I am medical director for Stella, which is the uh, we have about 50 doctors that, that do stellar ganglion injections across the United States. and We have a couple mm-hmm. of sites in uh, Australia, but psycholo- we, we, we always recommend working with psychologists. But you know, as I said, some are superb and some not as good. So mm-hmm. you know, it's like we do recommend psychological therapeutics, but not everybody. I mean, to me, it's pretty rare to see somebody, Dr. Cookley. I think her expertise is exemplary and. In the sense that in, a, in order to be truly trauma-informed, that takes a lot of dedication and knowledge and persistence. Mm.
2: So what is this uh, SGV process like? You said it's an injection. How long does it take? Where is the injection?
4: What yeah, does it sure. feel sure, like when the they get it? Yeah. Sure. Straightforward question. So the way it's done is everybody gets an IV. It's done for safety. Uh, about half of our people like to go to sleep, so don't, they don't they see or feel anything, and the other half do it under local, meaning I just numb up the skin. So the patient lies on the table, put monitors on, and I use ultrasound guidance to figure out where the targets are. Basically, we need to find some bones and some nerves, make sure we're in the right spot, numb up the skin and place the needle in the right spot, and then I, I like to do two levels, so one is C6, one is C4, we put local anesthesia in there. Uh, the whole thing, this for me takes about five seven minutes, and then when we're done, we see them in the recovery room. They will have a droopy eyeball. It means I'm I am in the right spot because when you anesthetize, fight and flight system or sympathetic system, they will have like a red eye and droopy eyeball, and hmm. a large percentage of people within 30 minutes go how oh, I feel so much better. Okay, so about 30 minutes later, they'll 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 just feel better. Will they be uh... Or sooner, I mean, a lot of them are, are grinning like fools. Huh, that's great.
2: Okay. <laughs> um, any <laughs> any, contra, any contraindications? Like they shouldn't drive for an hour after, or things like that. Or are they okay to do? Yeah, like, if,
4: if, you do sedation, yeah if, they, if you do sedation, yeah, if you do sedation, they shouldn't drive for the day. Certainly, per people under local, not driving for the next couple hours too, because they can be pretty sleepy. If you think about it, if your body's been running at full speed for a long time; they will get tired. So we recommend people kind of taking it easy. We prefer people with them, like accompanying them so somebody else can drive. Uh, A lot of them will go back to their home and sleep a couple hours after the block, even if they had no anesthetic, because they're so much more tired. And then usually they get the first good sleep in a very long time, which is great to see. And then... uh, Then they can, you know, then other work begins. You need to work with somebody like Dr. Kukla and then a lot of them can come off a lot of the medications that they're taking. How long does the the block last? Variable. The longest outlier so far was 16 years ago. This gentleman was in special forces and shot a 10-year-old kid laid an explosive in Iraq. So, you know, it was a horrible experience. He came home, tried to kill his wife a few times. So we treated them and he's still doing well after two procedures. 16 years ago. Um, So the answer to your question depends on three things. One, genetics. Two, what kind of other issues happen later, such as we had somebody who was doing great, who was a policeman, and then had to shoot um, somebody on the street and then flip them back to having problems. And number three, it depends what kind of work they do. If they do work with Dr. Kupla, if they meditate, they exercise, they eat well, all of that helps promote the impact.
2: I, I um I interviewed a lady named Nancy Sherman. She talked about what's called moral injury. I guess she works with people in the military and you know a after they injury? Involved, uh, moral injury. Moral, um, moral. I guess yeah. I don't know if there's a term that you know maybe it's just a term she has, but you know based on the job someone has, if they do it for X number of years, they're changed by it. You know, let's say again, you were in special forces and you had to you know assassinate people multiple times throughout the years. I would guess it would be hard to go back to a quote unquote normal civilian life because of, you know, what you did before. Or let's say you were, uh, you know, a judge in a criminal court and for years and years and years, all you see is people in trouble doing bad things or lying to you, et cetera. You know, it seems like that kind of stuff, um, damages you based on the job you do. So this, this lady calls it moral injury. I don't know if you ever run into that. It sounds like that's what you're describing, but I don't know if, um, you know, that's no, a term I, that's I familiar actually- to you.
4: You're know about moral injury, M-O-R-A-L, injury. Yes, yes that, that, yeah. that's a, uh, I'm very familiar with that. So, yeah, go ahead. Me go do, ahead. Yeah,
3: sure. I do work with that quite a bit. Um, it's, yeah, non uncommon, especially when we're working with military members and veterans to have that exposure piece there, the moral injury. And, um, General, um, Wukiyama, uh, is really well known for his work with this area, too. And he's actually, um, we're in the Chicagoland area, and he is connected with one of the local veteran administration hospitals by us. So, but, but yeah, it it, it can really be challenging to help people recover from that.
2: Mm. And well, um,
4: but, if someone but, has... Well, uh, go ahead. go ahead. That's okay, go ahead. No, so, my, so the way I look at the mortal injury, I... I, I there are interesting components to, from my perspective. Again, I look at it in a physiologic fashion. So, you know, basically, to me, moral injury is: when you doing things that morally you feel repugnant? Basically, that's what it is on a, on a continuous basis. But fight and flight system gets to be part of that, and they get people get traumatized by that behavior. So, if you can calm down the fight and flight system, and then process it, and you know, like for example, a gentleman that shot a ten-year-old child. He did not want to do that, but he was trying to protect his quad. So after the block, he said, you know, I remember the horrible part of it, but it's no longer in this vivid color. It's black and white, so I can live with it."
2: Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, when you treat people, are there things that they should not do because it'll just put them back in their previous state? Like Are there things they have to avoid or change about their lifestyle or behavior so that this takes hold and helps them and continues to help them ongoing?
4: Yeah, so the, from my, by my perspective, ideal, what the first thing that I should do is go through some psychological training. And, you know, meditation grows brain tissue back, which is real good. But putting themselves in high-risk behavior would be bad. And then, obviously, doing things which are potentially problematic, putting themselves in danger is not a good idea. Now, number of special forces and uh, conventional forces, people have gone back to active duty, and they were much more effective in that because they were not very frenetic. But again, ideally, if you are, let's say you're a veteran, you're retired, you don't wanna watch a bunch of military movies and put yourself in something that will trigger you. You wanna minimize the amount of triggers. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense, makes total sense. Well,
2: very good. Um, You know, unfortunately,
4: I know you guys can't
2: help the entire world, but for listeners that want help with this or want a referral, where can they go to learn more about this combined process and ptsd themselves
3: to
4: get help where should they go so at you can find me in stella dot com is the website that you know i'm I'm certainly practicing through that organization and if people don't want to travel to chicago they can be treated in other places we have a number of physicians providing those services um as far as dr Cookley and i we definitely do it in chicago so i'm sure she have her website okay and Dr. Kuka, any other resources that you'd like to
2: get?
3: I sure. I you know just in terms of uh, the nonprofit side, or Race P T S D. Now, uh, we have such an amazing mission there in terms of trying to fundraise and make it possible for those that, especially in marginalized communities, to perhaps have access to this uh, through a scholarship. And I'm just so proud to be involved in that part. Uh, There are so many people, you know, there's 12 million people, they estimate a year dealing with PTSD, um, and and many of them come from, you know, high-risk areas where they've been sex trafficked, you know, high areas of gun violence. And so for these individuals to have access to this procedure is just amazing. And so I'm just, yeah, I'm thrilled to be part of that and trying to help the efforts of fundraising so that... You know, our serious hope is that for those that can't afford this procedure themselves, that they do have access to it still through the foundation.
4: Mm. Okay. Well, that's excellent. The both website both for that is. Sorry. Mm-hmm. I was just okay. going to give you the website for the non-for-profit that's now dot org. Okay, excellent.
2: Well, very good. Uh, both of you, it's been really great to speak to both of you. I, I really like this combined therapy. I think it sounds incredibly promising and. uh Thank you both for sharing your wisdom on the call. I really appreciate you being here.
4: Thank you. Have a great day.
3: Thank you. We're very happy to be here.
0: Excellent. Remember, before you go, to grab your one penny bag of pine pollen for all the amazing all-natural hormonal support that men and women the world over are raving about. Try it out and see how it works for you. All you have to do is head to GeniusPollen.com to grab your bag today. Within days, you may be able to notice greater energy, more focus, added recovery, and more. Again, please visit GeniusPollen.com to learn more now. Thank you.
1: You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com.